Well, good morning. You all see that you have a little handout there. Um, I'll talk about that in a moment. Let's um, begin our time by opening back to Acts 2. This is going to be our last message from Acts 2. I'm going to deviate a little bit and apply the message from Acts 2. And, uh, and then in the coming weeks, we're going to head into Acts 3 and, and beyond. And I'll get to that document in a moment. Let me just read for a minute just to set the context on the study we've been in. If you've been with us, as Jonah mentioned, we've been in a series called Marks of a Church that Has Been Planted by God. And so the goal of that has been to try and strengthen our faith, like the early church's faith was strengthened, to really think about what it looks like when a church is born by God Himself. And we would never want to deviate from that, right? We would never want the church to look different than the one that God first planted in Acts 2. And so really, we've been studying the church's birthday. And we finished last time looking at those marks. And so this morning, we're going to talk a little bit more about how that spread out as the years went on in the church. But let me just read the passage to set our context in Acts 2. Let me go ahead and read probably from verses... uh, Let's read from verses 37 to 47, the whole section here. And I just want you to think again how comforting this passage would have been for the early church and and what a stabilizer it would have been for them as more churches were planted from Asia Minor and all across the coast and all through Greece and up into Italy. They would have went back to Acts 2 again and again. So let's just read it. Now when, the, the, when they heard this, that was the Jews at Pentecost, verse 37 of Acts 2, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? So you've got a bunch of unbelievers that are convicted over their sin. The Spirit of God has penetrated their heart with the Word. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to Himself. Verse 40, And with many other words, so now we get more of Peter's background. He starts instructing them on the early church life and what they need to be thinking about. What's he say? Leave the culture, join the church. Notice. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. They've come to Christ. He says, leave the culture, join the church. What happens? Next verse, it's connected. Verse 41. So then, those who were leaving the culture who had been saved, they joined the church. Those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And we studied that. That was probably men. There was probably many more that were added. Then the church broke forth in vibrant body life. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which was communion, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. That was everyone was in fear. Every soul feared because of the holiness of God. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and they were sharing them as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing in one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, you think about that passage. That's the church's birthday. And then we've got the rest of our New Testament, right? That spreads out 
what took place after the first church was born here in Jerusalem. That church started sending out missionaries and planting more churches. And you've got the church in Colossae. You've got the churches, church in Ephesus and the surrounding areas. You've got the Philippian church and the Galatian church and the Jews outside of Jerusalem, the Hebrews, and, and on and on. So churches are being planted. And while this passage is crucial, right? This is a crucial portion of Scripture as we've seen. It's a narrative. It's illustrative. It's telling us what happened by statement, by declaration. And so if that were just going to be enough to keep the church from losing its moorings, then he just would have kept saying, go back to Acts 2. But we've got all these letters in the New Testament and all these occasional letters that were writing to churches on how they were supposed to conduct themselves. In fact, just flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 really quick. This was a major theme through the New Testament. The churches were written to so they knew how to conduct themselves. They knew how to live. They, they knew what body life should look like. So Acts 2 gives us the illustration of when it's born. And then all the instruction starts coming. In fact, look at 1 Timothy 3 verse 15. You, think, you, think, um, you, you may think, uh, particularly if you're not from our church or you're new to it, that how we conduct ourselves in church is not a significant deal. That it's not important to God. But you should understand that the very reason that Paul wrote to Timothy, both of his letters to him were for one purpose. How he should conduct himself in the church. Notice 1 Timothy 3.15 But in case I'm delayed, Timothy, of all the things I could talk to you about, there's, we might say of first importance for you. I write, this is verse 15 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. I write so that you will know how to con a person may know how to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Literally think about that. The church is described as that location that upholds the truth of sound doctrine. So if the church goes out, the doctrine falls. You think, okay, he wrote that to Timothy. What about Titus? Flip over a page. Why did he write to Titus? Notice verse 5 of Titus chapter 1. For this reason, Titus, I leave you in Crete, so that you will set in order what remains. <laughs> Why? And appoint elders in every city as I direct you. Your goal, Titus, is to make sure that there's healthy, functioning local churches with elders helping those churches flourish. In fact, why does that take place? Notice verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Verse 11 of chapter 1. Who must be silenced, who are upsetting whole families, teaching them things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Beloved, every time a true church is planted by God, Satan does everything he can to spin as many false ideas and put as many, as many people that, that he has their ear, that he can bend their will to his, to put them in to seduce a church, to drift, to compromise. And then you even get true believers who are immature, like the church in Corinth, who because of their own heart and their own tendency were drifting away from the Acts 2 church. And then you got Revelation 2 and 3, where a bunch of churches were drifting from an Acts 2 church. And so you have to realize that your entire New Testament is full of commands and instruction on how you and I ought to function in the church. In fact, in your little piece of paper there, there's about 80 <laughs> or so, one another's. Now, you think about the one another's. What's the purpose of the one another's? The purpose of the one another's is to make sure that we uphold what Paul told Timothy, that we know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Beloved, you understand, well, Acts 2 is crucial. As the New Testament spreads out, we are responsible, we are obligated 
to know the one another's and practice them so that we can maintain the health that Christ birthed in the church. If you're wondering how I came up with these, uh, these 80 or so passages, I basically use three word groups. The one another word group, the brethren word group, and the saint word group, which are all speaking about our responsibilities to one another. And if you look at your little document here, it has about 80 references or so, but I turned it, broke it down in just to a short 44 categories. <laughs> so really, you've only got 44 main responsibilities if you're going to be a healthy Christian in the church. <laughs> but you need to remember something. The human heart is always prone to drift, right? Paul told the Corinthians, my great concern for you is that you would drift away from the pure and simple devotion to Christ. And Christ has a lot to say of what it looks like to be a part of His church. And so what I want to do today, since we finished Acts 2, I want to kind of imagine if we stepped back and we let the New Testament spread everything out that was already happening in Acts 2, what is it that keeps us hemmed in so that we maintain healthy, vibrant Christian lives and maintain and uphold what Christ birthed in a true church? And if you just look at this, just, just for a moment, just grab your document there. Just look at it. Look on the front. Look on the back. Okay. I want you to realize something. All of those passages are given to believers in the context of their local churches. See, I have this other great concern why I'm teaching today. Is I have this fear that we've heard these principles applied, these one another's, so many different places that we forget that their primary explicit context was for believers to apply in their local churches. For example, you've got Christian universities, you've got seminaries, you've got Christian schools, you've got parachurch organizations, you've got campus ministries, you've got Bible study fellowships, and on and on and on that are not necessarily connected with any local church, but then they use all of the passages for the one another's to talk about what they're supposed to do in those organizations and those institutions. Now, are you saying, is that wrong? No, we ought to be applying the principles to one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't, the one another's are for believers. They're an in-house discussion. There's plenty of passages on what you do with unbelievers. This is for believers, these passages. But what happens in those institutions is they start applying those like... We're, we're, a, we're an institution that is full of discipleship. That's great, but they should understand that there's never been a discipleship relationship in the Bible unless it came under a local church. They say, we're all about fellowship. Great. Just realize that that's a secondary application. That's an implicit or an implication. The explicit means on how these passages are applied is in the church. I'll, I'll prove this to you. Imagine if the Apostle Paul came up and said, Paul... From the back, come on up. I would like you to um, start the morning. Could you teach us about the one another's? Could you teach our class about the one another's? He'd say, sure. And he'd stand up and he'd start instructing on the one another's and telling us all that God requires. He wouldn't have anything in mind on where you would apply the one another's than in your local church, in your body, looking to the right and to the left. Oh, that's a one another. And that's a one another. All that would have been in his mind is not an institution, not a university, not a seminary, not a Christian school. He would have been thinking, the primary place the Spirit of God inspired me to pen these and put them in Scripture is so that you would be faithful to do these in your local church. He would have no idea of those other things. There was no such thing as a parachurch in the New Testament. 
Are parachurches wrong? Of course not. Parachurches are as good as they support healthy local churches. But I would say this. If a person, this is why I want to do this today, if a person uses their gifts and applies to one another's more in a parachurch at the neglect of their local church, I would say they're being unfaithful to what the New Testament calls them to be as a healthy Christian. Why? Because that was their intent. The occasion of all these passages that we have here was for believers to look around and say, how do I apply that in my local body? Now imagine if you were a first century Christian. You might have not even known another Christian outside the one in your church. Someone may have visited from Crete and you were in Ephesus and you thought, oh, another Christian, great. But if you would have heard the one another's, all you would have thought is, okay, I've got to do it for you and I've got to apply that to you and I need to apply that to you and when we, the rest of the church here, I need to go in the sanctuary. All, all I need to do is apply it here. My concern is that we take a crowbar, we pop these passages out of context, grab them, and we apply them wherever and acts like that's the same thing. That's not the same thing. Implicitly, that's true. You implicitly, by extension, apply these to other Christians. Explicitly, these are applied to believers in their local church. And that's crucial because today, everything in our lives that, that, that professes to be Christian seems to want to advertise itself as a surrogate church. And it can't be, beloved. You serve those things. You do campus outreaches on Bible studies. Uh, you serve at your university. You serve at those things. But realize that all of that service should be supplemental and on top of obeying these in your church. If you don't go to church here, wherever you go to church, this is what God requires you to obey in your local fellowship. And so I, I wanted to just take all these passages and gather them up and drop them in the context that Paul would have if he would have been here applying these and that would have been on Luke's mind and would have been in the early church's mind. I don't want us to drift, beloved, and imagine that we can be faithful to Christ without being absolutely immersed in obeying these in our church. Lastly, here's the last reason I want to do it. Could you imagine obeying 80 commands on the fringe of a church? <laughs> imagine that. Imagine Jesus coming and saying, hey, here's 80 requirements. Here's 80 things I want you to be doing in your local church. Ah, oh, great. Okay. Ah, Jesus, I'm just a little too busy these days. <sighs> you know, I've got a lot going on. I've got school. I've got work. I've got all these things, Jesus. Could you imagine Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, he might be like, so you're, let me, let me get this straight, you're too busy to obey? Oh, maybe you need to reprioritize. Now you say, well, some people hit seasons in their life where God takes them in a scenario where they can't be a part of it in that way. That's true, but you meet those people, if they have this heart, all they want to do is make sacrifices, do as much as they can to be faithful to the one another's. And so I wanted to take a morning and just spread these out for those reasons. To extract these from every other context and put them in their primary context. And just realize, every time you apply these outside of the church, it's implicit, not explicit. Do it, it's great. But it's by implication and extension. It's not their primary purpose. I want you to see today, too, that you cannot be an obedient Christian if you're on the fringe of a church. There's no way you can obey these on the fringe of a church. It's impossible, as I'll show you. And thirdly, I want you to see how many ways God hems us in to keep us from drifting from Acts 2. Okay? So that's our goal today. That's what we're going to do in our time. And you know why you want to be a part of a study like this? Because Jesus said, Matthew 16, 18, what did He say? I, what? Will build my church. 
and hell cannot come against it. Don't you want to be a part of and right in the dead center of what Jesus made a promise to? He made no promises to institutions. He's made no promises to Christian universities. He's made no promises to a parachurch organization. Those can support his mission, but where he's made a promise to is his bride that he purchased with his own blood. You cannot love the church more than Christ loved the church. He died for her. And so these passages are about local churches and applying it. So what I want to do in our remaining time is we are going to fly through. Are you ready? For a flyby of these 44 points. <laughs> you guys ready? You want to take a drink? or? <laughs> I'm not going to go over all the passages. I actually want to just introduce you to them, truly. And I want to encourage you guys to take these in your small groups that we're a part of. Take these in your discussions that you have, your lunches you have. And start studying these and ask yourself... Where could I obey these more? Where could I be more faithful, Lord? And get into one another's lives and apply the one another's on how you can apply the one another's. Got it? Okay. Let's jump in here. Practicing the one another's in body life. First one. Be at peace. Don't be divisive. Live in harmony. Pursue unity with one another. You might just want to use the sheet because of uh, how much turning you might not be able to do because I'm just going to use the sheet. So, first responsibility for you, believer... Be one who creates harmony and unity in the church. Notice Mark 9.50. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Romans 12.16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Jump down. 1 Corinthians 12.25. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Beloved, we have an obligation. You have a personal obligation from Christ, from the apostles here, to be someone that works hard to move toward every other believer in your local church to make sure that there's harmony and unity between you. That means sin that's harming relationships, as we'll see in a moment, you move toward one another. You confess to one another. You forgive one another. You talk about stuff with one another. And by the negative... That means you have an obligation to deal with your sins that hinder your ability to be in unity with people. Sometimes people say, how do I serve the church? Well, if you've got a rotten attitude, go work on your heart and that will be a better service to the church once you've repented of that and came with a godly attitude. You'll now be serving the church better. (laughs) All of these point back to our heart. You have an obligation to be in unity, to be in harmony. It's musical terminology. To be on the same key as everybody else in your church. You can't be on the same key with everybody else in every other local church. It's not going to happen. Different set of leaders, different set of way they work their convictions. But in your church, you ought to be in harmony as much as you can. Next one. Love. Love one another. Do you know that the Bible obligates you? The word group is, the word group, Ophelomai word group, it's you are obligated as if a slave to the master to apply this. Notice Romans 13.8. Owe nothing to anyone. Some of you are like, yes, done. I can obey that any time in the church. (laughs) Except to love. To love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the whole law. Then listen to Jesus. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love. How? How do you love? What's the standard of love, beloved? Just as I have loved you, 
You also are to love one another. John 13, 35. By this all people will you know you're my disciples. This is, a, this is a salvation issue. If you don't love the church, you should wonder if you're a Christian. By, just listen to Jesus. By this people will know you're a disciple. If you love one another. If you love the church. If you love God's people. John 15, 12. This is the commandment that you love one another. What is love? What is love? I was writing down, you know, we're always trying to work through definitions of love. I was trying to nuance one that I've kind of articulated over the years. I've borrowed some from Todd and other people. Here's kind of a working definition of this type of love. Biblical love, stated simply, is to love your fellow Christians in the church the way Christ loved you. So that is to serve them, move towards them, and sacrifice for them despite their merit with no agenda for the glory of God and their good. That's love. How, how do you capture that? Just watch how Christ loved. He loved us despite our merit. Is that right? You start thinking about these. We're only two in. Okay, We've only gotten two in. We've got a lot more to go. But notice already that ministry... Yes? Say that again? Yeah, you want me to send it out? Sure. I better send it out. <laughs> Is that alright? I'll send it out to the email. Tim, remind me later. Where are you? Tim, email. I'll put it on the Facebook. We'll be very millennial. Launch it. Okay. You guys need to understand that we're only two points in. Are you already noticing? Ministry and fulfilling the one another's is not about programs. It's about people. Every one of these begins to press in more and more on how you love people. You want to serve the church? You love its people. You serve its people. You love. You pursue unity. Next one. This is a good one. You've already obeyed this this morning. Welcome and greet one another. Can you believe how many passages in the New Testament are committed to your interactions with one another? You ever think about that? How often imperatives are given in the New Testament to tell you to be nice and kind and smile and greet someone with kindness when you see them in the morning? When you see them on the Lord's Day? Why? Because that's what Christians do. Notice Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's terminology of accept them, pull them in, love on them. Romans 16, 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And then I like the last one because of Matt Johnston, Hebrews 13, 24. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. <laughs> we should send him a message. You know what the opposite of that is? When you're ornery and you're stubborn and you're grumpy and you're pouting and you're self-pitying and you're not kind. Christians are a happy people because of what Christ has done for them. Sure, we get down. Sure, we get discouraged. But it ought to be a place. And I love GIBC. You come in here and you're full of smiles. It ought to be a place. We have sins forgiven. And so there's commands that you obey all the time. When you see people, they ought to experience warmth and receptivity if you're obeying this command. Hey, good to see you, brother. Great to see you. And we're not, at least we don't do the whole holy kiss thing. You want to go to Argentina with me, you'll get kissed all day. It's incredible. You want to go to Russia, you get kissed on the lips all day. I mean, that'll mess you up. It's a cultural thing. Our greetings are handshakes. Maybe a hug. Good to see you. Maybe us jocks bump into each other. Whatever. The issue is warmth, receptivity, kindness. You're obligated by Christ to not sit by yourself and sit in a corner and feel sorry for yourself and make sure people come up to you. You move towards people and love them. That's the command. Next, four, 
Be devoted to one another. Be devoted. It's another term for warm affection. Said in the negative, here's how you, here, you want to find out what devotion means? Let me say it negative. Here it is. You should never be indifferent or passive in your interactions and your commitment to others should be obvious on how you want to move towards them and serve them. Simpler, simple to this welcome greeting word group, but this is the idea of your whole life is devoted. How can you be devoted on the fringe of the church? How can you be devoted if you're not a healthy part of the church? Who are you devoted to? You've got to know people, be in their life to move towards them and show warm affection. Number five, do good to one another. And I love this because it just hammers home the church idea again. I love this. Notice this. Galatians 6.10 So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people. Okay? There's ever all unbelievers. You should treat all unbelievers good. We talked about this last week. How to be a godly testimony. Be kind. Be a good citizen. Right? And you, it, it's surprising what Paul says next. Do good to all people, especially... Whoa! Paul cranks it up in his mind. Do good to everyone, but especially those who are in your local fellowship in the church. The household of faith. Especially when you meet Christians. Go above and beyond to do good to them. This is how they thought about the early church. This is how the early church thought about body life. They knew the world was hostile and it hated them. They didn't live in the society like we live in where it's like you've got Christians, then you've got this mushy middle of people that profess Christ and may or may not be, then you've got this other pe- group of people that don't profess Christ but they're just pagans and live how they want. A whole bunch of people professing Christ that may not be Christians. They just had believers. <laughs> and then they had false teachers that would try and sneak in. We got this whole other set of people that it makes it difficult for us. You should realize that your local congregation, your believers, is where you should be most looking to do good to them and serve them. Let's keep going. Number five. Number six, excuse me. Give preference to one another. Oh, that's hard for some of us, isn't it? How many of you love your preferences? Come on, come on. Anyone that doesn't raise their hands is a liar. <laughs> if you don't know you love your preferences, wait till you get married. And you'll, hear, you'll know how much you love your preferences. <laughs> so what's this mean? Give preference to one another. Here's a simple definition. I'd say, find ways to defer and prefer others above yourself. Do you guys think that way? In the church, I should be looking for ways to prefer and defer other, for other believers. It's important to think about your roommates, whoever. Number seven, be sympathetic to one another. This one probably is the most convicting for me on a regular basis. You know what the word sympathy means? Enter into someone's suffering as if you're suffering in the same way they're suffering. That takes time, doesn't it? It takes effort. It takes a listening ear. It takes moving towards them. Literally, it means to jump in with them and feel the pain the way they feel it the best you can. That has been one of my greatest struggles as a husband is to learn to live with my wife, 1 Peter 3, 7, in an understanding way. And when something's burdening her, to not just chalk it off, ah, yeah, 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 no, no, no. I am commanded by Christ to emote and feel the best I possibly can as a dude <laughs> what you're feeling. Sometimes, th- this is commanding emotion. This is commanding you to get your heart to a place where you enter in with them, where you suffer the ways they suffer. When's the last time you did that for someone in the body of Christ? 
where they came and told you a burden or a struggle or something they're, they're struggling with and you jumped in to feel it the way they feel it and tried to come alongside them. There's no way you can do that on the fringe of the church. It's impossible. How could you even know the needs to know where you needed to be sympathetic? Number eight. Treat one another like family. 1 Peter 3, 8 again. Brotherly. It's the word Philadelphia. It's where we get the word city of what? Brotherly love. The word there is to treat other believers like they're your family. How do you treat your family? You're willing to make sacrifice to your family. You'll get up in the middle of the night to go help your family. Even your bum brother who's not been very good to you, if he calls you in the middle of the night, what are you going to do? All right, bro, I'm going to come help you. Why? You make extra sacrifices because they're family. Well, this is making the idea that Jesus' blood (laughs) unites believers and makes them family. So they ought to be willing to sacrifice to that degree for one another. You treat the church like family. That's that word group. That's how they thought about the church. Number nine, be kind to one another. Be kind. I talked about this with the ladies on Proverbs 31 on Thursday night. Gentle, kind, humble. Notice, he connects kind-hearted and humble in spirit. Opposite, you want to know what it's like not to be kind? Rude, mean, hurtful, brash, aggressive. That's not kind. Here's kind. Genuine, warm, tender, easy to get along with. Are some of you hard to get along with? Like if we hung out with you, would you be like, I'm kind of a hard case. People, they get around me enough and the, the prickles start to come out and they spend too much time around me. I can be pretty difficult. Kindness says, I'm going to work hard to deal with my heart so that I am easy to be around so I can, as we'll see in a moment, refresh you and serve you. Kindness. How about this one? This is convicting. Number 10. Be humble toward one another. Notice 1 Peter 5, 5, one of my favorite passages. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. And all of you, the idea, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You could think about it this way. No matter what I put on in the morning for my outfit, no matter how good I think I look, if I haven't put on humility, it doesn't matter. Because <laughs> why? God opposes me. When I'm proud in relationships. That context there is clothe yourself with humility on how you interact with one another. What is humility? Lowly mindedness. Deferring. Preferring. Serving. Looking at others as better than yourself. When I don't put on that mindset, it says God's opposed to me in my pride. Fulfilling this one another is to literally clothe your inner life with the humility of Christ and how He treated people. That's a convicting one. Now you start seeing... These commands, you see each one of them hedges against tendencies, right? If pride destroys the church and we devour each other, then humility crushes pride. No wonder there's so many calling us to think this way about how we treat each other. If disunity destroys the church, then all these calls are for how to pursue unity. You just see the connections here. Notice, let's keep going. Next one's kind of the same, 11. Consider others as more important than yourself. That's another way of humility. Philippians 2.3. Let's just keep moving. It's kind of the same theme. Let's do 12. Contribute to one another's needs impartially. Notice Romans 12, 13. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. What's the idea there? Don't just contribute with your lips. Contribute with your life and even your resources. And it says who to. This is really convicting. You could say, I could give to someone and contribute and give resources if I really know them. But if you meet a true believer who's a stranger to you, The word for hospitality is there is love of strangers. 
So imagine new believer comes to church. You're confident in their testimony. They're the real deal. They have a need. You have an opportunity. He says, look to contribute to help them, even someone you barely know if they're a believer. That's hospitality. That's love of strangers. That's contributing. Thirteen, wash one another's feet. Look what Jesus says. John 13, 14. If then the, the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now in that context, we don't have time to get into it, but that implies forgiveness of one another's. That implies sacrificial love. But particularly, I think the unique contribution of that passage is this idea. It carries the idea of looking to serve your fellow brothers even when you have to stoop down to tasks that are not as glamorous. How could you know how to even serve people in, in ways that may not be as glamorous if you're not absolutely immersed in people's lives? How could you obey that? How could you obey that on the fringe of the church? How is that possible? It's impossible to remain obedient on the fringe. Are you seeing it? You must be in the heart of people's lives in the church. Let's keep going. 14. Outdo one another in honor. This is, the, this is one of the, the only times the Bible says, get competitive. Ready? Ready, guys? Ex-athletes, ready to get competitive? I know you get on the basketball court and you mix it up. I know we had a... Uh, t-ball game the other day and I was barely staying out of the flesh because my son's team was getting smoked. All my, com- all my competitive juices, all my old life, I was ready to, you know, it was not good. And I just kept saying, Darren, this is good for you to get your teams getting smoked. This is so good for you. Your pride right now, it would not have been healthy for your soul to win today. What's that? You're one of those kind of dads. It was internal though. It was internal. It was internal. I shepherd... We'll watch that. <laughs> Hold me to it. That's a one another right there. Do you see that? One another. Public, public one another. Now I'm sweating. I literally said, I said on the field out loud, this is good for you, Darren. Okay, let's keep moving. Let's look at this. Here's competitiveness. Ready? Outdo one another. How do you outdo one another? With brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is a mindset that he's talking about. Find ways to go above and beyond to bless and serve others, even beyond what you've thought about before. Even beyond. You say, here's what service looks like. Here's what ministry looks like. How do I even go above and beyond that to bless people more and outdo them and honor them and serve them and esteem them and bless them? Has that thought ever come to your mind? Not only do I just need to serve as my obligation, but how do I crank it up and get competitive about going above and beyond? That's an awesome call right there. 15. Don't judge one another in gray areas. We don't have time for the whole context, but Romans 14, 13 says this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Simply stated, where the Bible is not clear on something and another believer wants to operate a certain way, don't stand over them and judge them. It's the whole point of of, uh, that passage. Don't stand over someone and hold them to some standard the Bible doesn't hold them to because you maybe apply it differently. Where the Bible leaves room, we have room. Don't judge one another in that way. Okay, now the flip side of it. 16, ready? Build up, encourage one another. That's the word for fortify. 
doesn't just mean you tell everybody, you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome, you're great, that guy's so encouraging. No, these two passages speak of speaking in a way that fortifies their foundation. Sometimes that's an exhortation. Sometimes that's an encouragement. Sometimes that's an admonishment. Sometimes that's a rebuke. Whatever it is, it's spoken in a way that's meant to strengthen the foundation of their Christian life so they're more stable. Look at those passages. Notice what it says. Romans 14, 19. So then, pursue the things which make for peace and building up one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, Encourage one another and build one another up. Fortify their life. Now 17, similar idea. Admonish one another. I like uh, Colossians 3.16. Listen to this. Let the word of Christ richly dwell with you, with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in the heart. So that, as we'll see in a moment, goes all the way to singing to one another, but it's just speaking truth to one another. Beloved, do you know that you can't really admonish someone unless you have convictions? And unless you're living a holy life? How do you serve the church? Live a holy life. Be credible. Be godly. Be exemplary. So when you go speak to someone, they don't think you're a hypocrite. You can't even obey that if you're not living a godly life. How are you going to admonish people and call them to live something you're not living? Part of being and fulfilling the one another's is working on your own soul so you can live this. Next, 18. Restore one another. Guys, this will just be a counseling for everyone, okay? Oftentimes you guys will come to me and say, I see someone and I think they're in sin. I've seen them in sin. Great. What was your conversation like with them? Well, I haven't talked to them yet. Oh, have you read Galatians 6.1? Brethren, <laughs> if anyone is caught in a trespass, if you see someone in a little legitimate sin, hang back, go tell the pastor, talk to a couple friends about it, go tell a couple other people about it, stew about it in bitterness, and then move on in your life and sweep it under the rug. No. Brethren, if you see someone caught in a trespass, they're caught. You who are spiritual, get yourself in the Spirit. Take your heart to Christ. Be ready to be godly. And go restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking out for yourself so you too will not be tempted. You're obligated by Scripture if you see a brother in sin to go. And if you're not sure, you go ask them if you're not sure. And if you see them in sin, you're commanded by Christ to talk to them. So if you see someone in sin and it's legitimate sin, they're legitimately caught in a trespass, and you don't go, you're sinning as well. It's a command. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, restore. It's an imperative. Go. You're commanded by Christ to go. Do you do it? Oh, I'm going to show them. Nope. A spirit of gentleness. You know what that word is? It's the word for a calm breeze that blows through. Like when that air conditioning hit us today, how good that felt. That's what your attitude wants to be. It's the word for a lion tamer. You bring a calming element in your confrontation. 19. Counsel one another. Same idea. You have to be looking to counsel, admonish, encourage. 20. Refresh one another. I love this verse. One of my favorite in the New Testament. Philemon 7. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints, this is implied command, have been refreshed through you. When people meet you, the word there is, they're spiritually revitalized. Hanging out with your name means I just got spiritually recharged. I go into that person's home and I'm refreshed. I get in a conversation with that person and I leave wanting to go serve Christ more. That's a command. Well, it's an implied command. 
20. 1. Speak the truth to one another. Same idea. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth. But this one actually gets to the idea of you being a truth teller yourself. Notice. Ephesians 4.25. So it's not the same idea. Excuse me. It's a different idea. Erase that. Different idea. This one's getting to the idea of your own honesty. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put on the old self with its practices. The idea in both those passages is a lying person in the body is poison to the body. Learn to be a truth teller. That means no rationalizing, justifying, minimizing, omitting, blame shifting. Just be a brutal truth teller. You're commanded by Christ to not poison the body with lies and dishonesty. Stir up one another. 22, Hebrews 10, 24. The word is irritate. Let us consider how to irritate one another to love and good deeds. We've talked about this a lot in here, but the word there for consider is before you walk into an environment, you're called by Christ to slow down and think about how do I help other people be more godly and holy and humble and righteous? How do I help them have more love and more good deeds? 23, sing to one another. Did you know that if you go, when we sing in here and you sing with a heart that's right before Christ, you're singing to God and each other? We're admonishing each other. When I hear you singing, it's admonishing me with that content. When you hear me singing, I'm admonishing you and we're singing to the Lord. Notice, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Singing content and truth. How could you Obey that command if a person wasn't part of a church. How could you sing and admonish people? 25. Submit to one another according to God's design. Ephesians 5.21. Submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. Don't mistake that. You don't have to submit to everyone. The Bible's not saying submit to everyone. The Bible says submit according to God's design. Ephesians 5. Wives to husbands. Children to parents. Slaves to masters. There's a, there's a divine order. You submit where God says to submit, which includes, if you're part of a local church, notice, you're called by Christ, Hebrews 13, 17, to submit to your leaders and obey them. Look at it, Hebrews 13, 17. <coughs> obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give in account. How in the world can someone be an obedient Christian if the leaders don't know them? Impossible. Impossible. 26. Comfort one another with the second coming. I love this. Look at this. How often do you encourage people about the second coming of Christ and to prepare their hearts and to live holy lives because one day Christ is going to return. He could return right now or right now or right now. We don't know. And all the time we're supposed to live in anticipation of that. This verse, it's a command for us to be regularly comforting one another with Christ's return that one day all the pain and suffering will end and we'll be with Jesus. 1 Thess 4, 17, 18. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Isn't that going to be sweet? Oh, that'd be so great. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another that you're going to be with Christ someday. 27. Contend for the next generation of one another's. I love this. Do you know that you're obligated to know the truth, protect the truth, withhold the truth, I mean, uh, not withhold the truth, defend the truth to such a degree that the next generation gets the truth? You don't want to withhold it. You want to deliver it. Wrong verb. Look at it. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt 
the necessity to write to you, appealing to you, to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to who? All the saints. Don't drop the baton. You're responsible to know it, hold on to it, maintain it, keep it in perfect condition, and give it to the next generation. That is commanded by Christ. Let's keep going. 28. Appreciate the one another who are your leaders. 1 Thess 5.12. Notice the middle of the verse there. You appreciate diligently those who labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. You know what a pastor is? He's a one another. Who God happened to tap on the shoulder and say, I'm going to have you lead. And he's like, no, that's not a good idea. Yeah, it's going to be you. You're going to need to step up and become a leader. (laughs) And that's how pastors feel. God's called us to do that. That's how elders feel and leaders feel. How do you know they're leaders? They have proven character. The Bible says, honor them. Honor those one another's who God has raised up. Not because they're so worthy, but because God's doing a good work through them. 29, show hospitality. That's the love of strangers word group. 30, fellowship with one another. Enter into one another's lives on every front to be immersed in their life, to share spiritual resources. 31, here's one for you. Watch out that you don't consume one another. Galatians 5.15 But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed. What's that one mean, beloved? Work on your own heart so that you don't consume and ruin the church by your pride. An unsanctified person is the most dangerous thing in a church. Let's just finish these out. Next week will be to Acts 3. You guys can go study these later. I encourage you to go over them. Let's just finish out here. Do not provoke one another. Same idea. Do not envy one another. Forgive one another. You're called to forgive. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. I mean, guys, just think about that. Do not provoke. Do not envy. Forgive. Confess. Pray. That is implying you're in tons of people's lives. 37. Bear one another's burdens. Shoulder people's hurts and pains and walk with them. Do not speak evil against one another. Do not grumble against one another. How are you doing on that one? Don't grumble. Do you grumble against people in the church when they're a struggle for you? Do you go tell other people how difficult they are? Are you grumbling? That's sin. That's a command. Don't grumble. If you have an issue with someone, go talk to them. You don't got to tell six people before you go talk to them. Go talk to them. That's what the Bible says to do. Galatians 6.1. Romans 12. You go. And then there's some one another's that you got to watch out for. Notice 40, 41, and 42 are all about the people that are in the church that profess to be one another's that you need to watch out for. But think about that. You're now responsible to watch out for divisive people, unruly people, immoral people. Do you ever think about that? This is commands to you and I in the church. That means you must love the church, love the purity of the church, love the holiness of the church, love the doctrine of the church. You're never a passive attender on a Sunday morning, beloved. Look at this. Watch number 40, Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause divisions. Look at number 41. Now I command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, keep away from certain brothers who leave unruly lives. 1 Corinthians 5.11 Immoral man, don't ever make them feel comfortable in their sin. 42 If a man's divisive and false doctrine, he's to be removed from the church. You have a responsibility to do that. How could you do that if you don't love the church and you're on the fringe? If you're on the fringe, how would you even know if someone's divisive in the body? How would you know where there's danger? How would you know who is healthy and who is not if you're on the fringe? You wouldn't be able to. And then 43, we'll save for your guys' marriage counseling, premarital. Do not deprive one another. That's only to be obeyed in marriage between two believers. We'll wait till premarital for, the, for that one. Then 44, 
Excel still more in your one another's. And I'll finish with this and we'll be done. Beloved, if you heard one thing today that you thought, man, I'm doing good, say, praise the Lord. This is about to tell you to do more. Any area that you're weak, it's about to tell you to do more. This is a call for us to live this way. Let's read it and then we'll, this will be my completion because our time's gone. First Thess 4, 9 and 10. Now as to the love of the brethren... You have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For indeed you practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But here it is, beloved. GIBC, college and career, tune in. If you're listening, don't stagger. Don't self-pity. Go to Christ. I urge you, excel still more. You're dismissed.